Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you as reservoirs fill with the spring snowmelt here in the mountains of Utah. Today is launch day for me. Montego, my Glass Immortals novella, is officially out. You can pick up signed copies from my website, ebooks from your favorite retailer, and audiobooks from Audible and iTunes. For European readers, you can also get signed copies of all my novellas from The Broken Binding. Also, for European readers, don't forget that I'll be at PeerCon in Poznan, Poland for the weekend of June 16th. Now, on with the show. My guest this week is author Becky Chambers. Becky is known for her breakout science fiction Wayfarers series, which began in 2015 with A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. Wayfarers books have been nominated for a whole bunch of awards and won the Hugo for Best Series in 2019. Becky is also the author of the Monk and Robot series, as well as a number of short stories. Becky and I chat about beekeeping and our love of the natural world, and the way hope and wonder helps fuel our writing. We also talk about the way fiction can explore nuance in a way that the real world often ignores. Finally, we get into the way writers grow and change over time, and how we can fall into the rut of working on the same types of projects for the same types of audiences over and over again. Enjoy my conversation with Becky Chambers. So I saw a thing that uh, said that you are a beekeeper. Uh, you know, I used to be. I uh, unfortunately lost um, both my hives a few years ago, but I will make this not a bummer, I promise. <laughs> but uh, yes, I, I did keep bees for, for uh, a number of years. Uh, beekeeping is tough in the here and now. And so uh, after my wife and I uh, uh, sadly had to, to bid fel- farewell to the two colonies under our care, we decided instead to uh, focus on making our yard uh, a good place for native pollinators instead. So I am not as hands, I do not have my head in a box of bees on the regular anymore, but um, I have I have all sorts of uh, interesting critters uh, doing the same work in my yard. Uh, in a way that that I don't have to interfere as much with, which I feel good about. So yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, so I actually had the exact same experience with beekeeping. So when uh, when I sold my first books mm-hmm. back, I think it was 2012 when I got paid for the first time, and my like big special thing was spending you know like a thousand dollars on beekeeper equipment. Yeah. You know, I got I got the nice extractor. I got all the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. And honestly, it was really fun. And I did it for, I did it consistently for, I think about six or seven years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, and then, yeah, the last hive I had was the first, the very beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. I got my last hive and it did well that summer and then it died over the winter. And I finally was just kind of like, okay, I can't deal with getting a new hive every year or two. It's so depressing. It's, it's really it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking when it happens. And it is something that just does happen. They're not pets. They're, you know, they're very much uh, their, their own little ecosystem that you're just trying to be a good steward for, but it is, it is hard. It is hard to lose a hive for sure. It really is. I, um, it's one of those weird things. Cause you, you know, you can get into it and you, you don't really understand all anything about it until you've done it yourself. Yeah. Like you can read all the books and stuff, mm-hmm. but until you're actually like, like you said, head in the hive, yeah. like <laughs> you really don't, you don't like understand the, the, the little things that you have to deal with. And I don't know, it, it was very rewarding and very cool. Uh, like I had one of those weird, like awesome things where my very first year I had a single hive and got like 70 pounds of honey from it. That's insane. That's a crazy amount of honey for a single box. Wow. That's crazy. I know. 
And then I spent the next several years trying to like replicate that right. and didn't. Well, because yeah, there's no, there's no controlling for it, right? Like the bees are going to do what they're going to do. The flowers are going to do what they do. Um, but I think, I think that's actually what it was that I took away from it. Cause we actually coincidentally, so we lost our two um, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was like, you know what, there is, there's kind of a lot going on in, <laughs> in the world right now. I'm not sure that I need to take like, a hundred thousand tiny things under my care right now. I think I'm just going to focus <laughs> on myself, but, um, but that's the thing about it. Right. Is that they don't ever get used to you. People talk about like, Oh, the bees get used to you. They don't because they live like two months. They have no idea what you are or um, you know, what your deal is. You're just this, this shape that appeared a few times and that's it. What happens is you just get more skilled and more comfortable working with it. But um, that was one of the things that I found really awe-inspiring about it was this incredible sense of responsibility, right? This sense of, I, I have to learn their language. I have to learn what actions are going to upset them, what's going to be comforting for them. I have to learn how to navigate this, even though they cannot reciprocate, you know? And there, there is something wonderfully, um, humbling but and also very alien about that right like they don't know what i am or why i'm here but i have to try and adapt my big clumsy primate body as best as i can <laughs> to uh to working with these these tiny incredible creatures um yeah it i've always i've always loved bugs uh, ever since i was little little um but my time working with honeybees um just gave me just it's such a such a deeper appreciation for uh, all the tiny things we share the world with. So I'm I'm very grateful for the experience, and I may pick it up again one day. But right now, I, as I said, I'm happy. I'm happy seeing what moves into my yard with without my say so. So that's that's also very rewarding and fun. I, I keep telling Michelle that I'm going to sell all my equipment because mm-hmm. it's taken up all the space in my garage. Right. And, uh, and she keeps kiboshing that. She keeps saying, no, you're going to do it again someday. So yeah. you're going to want to at some point. And so just keep everything. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so for the moment, I still have all my stuff. <laughs> uh, I, I came out of it with kind of this really, um, like really deep respect for kind of this, this ability, this thing that you don't really have any control over it. You just, you're, you're providing a home and sometimes you're trying to help with, you know, illnesses or strengthening the hive in some way, but really you just, you're almost like a landlord. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, But like that moment in the, like the late spring after your hive has kind of grown and, gotten itself established for the year and you first crack it and you pull out like an entire like honeycomb Mm -hmm. and you look at it and you're doing your inspection but you see that first like you know capped wax honeycomb like that that moment every year was kind of what i lived for for the beekeeping was it was just it's so cool to see this structured perfectly natural but very almost uh, almost human looking because it's so structured and so well built just i find it really incredible yeah likewise they are they are remarkable engineers and they're so much better at it than than we ever could be i think they're so sensitive to everything in their environment and they keep such a tidy house too like it's so clean in there is the other amazing thing like it's so um it's it's just it looks like such a cozy place to be and they do such a good job cleaning it up in a lot of ways i don't want to touch it at all because i'm just like um you you've been doing this for for millions of years longer than than we've been bothering you about it so um who am i to interfere you know i liked uh i liked always taking the extractor after finishing in the fall take the extractor up and just set it next to the hive Mm -hmm. and they clean it up in like 12 hours yeah like it's it's great it's great it's yeah. like i don't know it's just beekeeping is one of those things that like i said i got kind of depressed with the trying to trying to establish hives and then have a bad winter and they die and ah uh, you know but it's still such a cool thing yeah i'm i'm always amazed at people that like do it for a living and they have hundreds and hundreds of hives and Oh, that's crazy to me. Yeah, I, uh, my wife and I took a, a beekeeping course before we actually did it because I'd wanted to try it for years. But, um, you know, I was like, let's actually get some hands because I didn't want to end up in a, in a situation where I'm like, I bought all this stuff. I have bought literal boxes full of bees and I actually hate this. And that was not what ended up happening. But I was like, I want to go. I want to learn all I can and 
and try it out first. Um, but yeah, my instructor, um, so I live in a, a rural part of uh, Northern California. And so my, um, my instructor, we had, you know, a few days of class just at his home uh, in the, in his bee yard, you know, and I was just like, this is the coolest thing. <laughs> this is so cool that you just have a bee yard. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's a really, it's a really beautiful um, tradition. And I, and it, there is something also that makes me feel very, uh, you know, sort of uh, looking down the long lens of history about it, you know, because people have been beekeeping for thousands of years. And so it is this very, very ancient thing. And I mean, granted, modern beekeeping is very different than when it used to be, you know, let's put some bees in a basket and, and just throw it in the river, <laughs> like to get them out. Like, we have come a long way since that. But still, it's this, um, this very low tech sort of thing. It's a wooden box that you put some things in, and then you just pull honey out of it, and you don't do anything to it. It's just, it's just there. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know, there's something very sort of old school homo sapien about it that I also really dig. Well, and it also was incredibly important historically mm. because it was something that didn't take a ton of effort. Like it didn't take up your harvesting time. Like yeah. you would have to, you know, put a couple of days into it every year. Like, you know, it's hard work and you have to pay attention, but you didn't have to kind of, you know, take away from the other things that you were doing as a hardworking medieval person. Yeah. Uh, you could keep bees on the side and they, they would help with your, you know, farm and stuff like that. It's, and, and the calorie count just kind of strictly speaking <laughs> that you get out of it is kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It also made me appreciate um, wax and candle making so much more. Cause I don't know if you ever harvested the wax as well as the honey, you get so little, like you can get a ton of honey, but like the amount of wax you get out of it, um, like I would render the, the, um, so I didn't use an extractor. I would use just crush and strain and I would take the, uh, the wax at the end and, you know, just render it into like a, a, a beeswax cake, you know, that you can then melt down and make candles with and stuff. And you get like maybe a pound or two out of like two being generous, you know, out of, out of a single hive. And it's, uh, it really makes you appreciate how rare and value why these things were so valuable you know why people were using tallow and whatnot instead because that was more plentiful and it was cheaper whereas like the good stuff that smelled good um you know that was actually something that was more labor intensive and something that um was harder to come by so it's it's i don't know i love i love activities like that that give you an appreciation and an understanding for the things that um we really take for granted oh yeah for sure oh it's really cool it's such a funny kind of hobby, you know, like mm -hmm. just you do learn a lot kind of about just kind of the, how the ecosystem works. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just the beekeeping itself, but like, like you said, trying to keep the hive alive, knowing temperatures and knowing, you know, what is required for this crazy little uh, ball of, you know, what, 80,000 bees, mm -hmm. like what how does this exist in this world because we don't think about that you know yeah. we're, we're sitting in our houses just doing our thing as humans <laughs> and all around us we've got all of that going on and and like you were talking about just broadly with insects you know like insects are they're just such a wild like thing that you know isn't it something like the uh, the biomass of insects far outweighs like all of the mammals on the planet or something like that? It's true. There's way more of them than there are of us. And um, I and I complete. I want to say that like I completely understand people who get squicked out by bugs. I know that I am uh, rare and weird in that they've never bothered me. And I, and so whenever I am uh, you know talking to friends about like oh I found this cool thing out in the woods and that but I always preface it like I don't have to show you like you have to opt in to me show, like showing you pictures of the weird things I find in the woods. But um, but it is just an incredibly beautiful thing if if they don't spook you or if you can work up the oomph to just go look at the little stuff um living in your you know living in your environment whether that be rural or urban whether you're in the country or in the city like they're everywhere and they have jobs and you know they're not um they, they're not really interested in us you know because they've got their own little lives they've got their own little dramas they don't want anything to do with you they just want to you know uh go find food and find a cozy hole to live in you know like it's very relatable so 
Um, yeah, I am, I am constantly fascinated by uh, the communities of things that I live alongside. And I spend a lot of time thinking about what, uh, what my neighborhood, what my house, what my, uh, what the street looks like to creatures other than us, you know, like big and small. I have a bear that hangs out in, um, behind our house, uh, cause we've, I'm up against forest. And so, um, I think a lot about what the neighborhood looks like to the bear. And I think about what it looks like to the frogs that also hang out here and the birds and whatnot, you know, like we, it, it's fun if you can sit and, and flip the camera in your head to what does this look like top down? What does this look like if you don't understand a fence? What does this look like if you are, you know, the size of an ant? Um, it's uh, it's a really good way to, um, <laughs> to to get over yourself and and shed a bit of ego. I think to realize um, the world is really not all about us. See, I like to do that. Um, my way of doing that is looking up. You know, like looking at the stars at night mm, mm-hmm. is like the quickest way to feel your own insignificance. Yes. Uh, and I, I actually kind of love it. It's a slightly terrifying feeling, but it's also like really, mm-hmm. like it's relieving. Yes. You're like, none of this crap that I'm worried about all the time really matters beyond this tiny circle of influence in a human world. Everything else, it just it's the the universe is so much bigger that it, it doesn't matter you know even yeah. humanity as a species is nothing yeah yeah and it's crazy to think about i bet i bet like so does that kind of thinking come into like your science fiction oh all the time like that that's that's the the meat and potatoes of it i think you know i i grew up looking at bugs i grew up on carl sagan i grew up going to planetarium planetarium shows and 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 whatnot you know i've got in my in my garage right now i have beekeeping equipment as discussed but i've also got a couple telescopes out there you know like i love looking at the big and small equally and feeling just my extremely insignificant place in the middle of it and the thing is i know that again like bugs freak some people out like there are some people who you know, I, and I also understand that too, the existential horror of it all, right? Like, oh God, I don't matter. None of this actually matters. I find it liberating. I find it um, so comforting and soothing to know like, oh, we're, we're just animals. We're just these animals. I am this momentary collection of, you know, molecules and electrical impulses. And no one knows why, because everybody is, you know, everybody who has ever been able to reflect on the world um, has been in that exact same state. And I have just this little bit of time. And yeah, sure, mortality, a little freaky. Like that's a little, you know, uh, uh, but that too, I'm just kind of like, okay, for, for this brief moment, the universe has me in it and it does not revolve around me. I'm one of of many, 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 not just people, but different critters, you know? And, um, and so to me, that just says, um, make, make the most of it, you know? And that doesn't mean you have to like, uh, achieve big things. That doesn't mean you have to, you know, go down in history, whatever. It's not a competition. It's just like for this instant, this collection of stuff can look at the world and think it's wonderful and can experience things and can, uh keep bees eat ice cream have friends like all these wonderful things you know uh it's um that that is something that very much um come uh, fuels what i write and why i write it because i think that um existence alone is worth telling a story about i tend to tell stories about uh very ordinary people very everyday people and that's that's on purpose because i i what i'm what i'm trying to say with that is you know, look at the, look at this big, incredible universe we live in. And it's enough to just exist in it for whatever amount of time that you have. Uh, and it does, you don't have to be, um, someone extraordinary. You don't have to be a chosen one or, or a hero of any kind. It's okay to just, uh, to just be, and, and those stories are worth telling too. So, um, so yeah, the, everything I write is, um, very much a, an expression of, of that ex- extremely core piece of my worldview that, um, you know, that the minutiae is beautiful. Yeah. Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. 
Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. Now, uh, I don't know if this was a uh, a you thing, but I saw your books tagged with Hope Punk. Um, was that something that, that you coined for that? Or was that something that was kind of added to after the fact? Uh, Hope Punk found me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I actually, the first time I was asked this question was, uh, was the, the, the place I learned this term was because someone said, so what do you think about your books being called Hope Punk? And I'm like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> Please explain. Um, but now nah, people have explained since. And I think it's wonderful, actually. I, 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 um, I take it as a, as a, as a huge compliment because to me, anytime you add the suffix punk, right. People tend to think that that, of that is an aesthetic right uh steampunk cyberpunk uh diesel punk you know those conjure uh you know a certain vibe a certain type of clothing a look you know but hope punk i mean that's that's something a little different and i i would argue that all the other genres i i just mentioned as well are best when they're actually uh leaning into the punk side of it which is to say uh that you are resisting the status quo which is to say that you are looking at the everyday and putting your foot down and saying no i think this can be different this can be better you know punk uh implies uh radical thought it implies um pushing back and um and there's a real sense to me at least of of community and togetherness within within punk as a concept as well and so hope punk to me um this 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 term that has adopted my my work um what it, what it says to me is that you know that that hope itself is an act of resistance and that is something i i truly believe i truly believe that there is something um radical and rebellious about looking at the world as it is at looking at all the uh the grim uh litany of horrors <laughs> that we face every day uh, that we have to laugh at because what else can you do? Um, it's it's a tough time to be alive. And maybe that's been true of every point in human history, but uh, things do feel bleak a lot of the time. And so to look at that and to say, I believe the future can be better, actually. I believe that people are better than this. I believe in our inherent goodness. I believe in not like a rose-colored glasses sort of future, nothing sugar-coated, but I believe in a future in which uh, we overcome those problems. That's not being naive. I think that's something that takes a lot of um, effort and a lot of discipline to to um, to every day wake up and say, "No, I think it can be better, and I'm going to work toward that." That's hope punk to me. Um, and so, if if that's if that's a category, my work is being shelved in. Um, once again, I, I can't think I can't think of higher praise. No, I absolutely love that. That's great. I um, like I came into my career right about the time. Well, a ways into the time where Grimdark was the epic fantasy, like you like Golden Boy. Like if you were writing a new thing in epic fantasy, it was probably Grimdark. And uh, and it's interesting because. Like uh, back when I used to read a lot more, I I devoured all of that, mm-hmm. and I definitely came away with mixed feelings because because I think I think even something like Grimdark at its best is about kind of about the little guy kind of getting through life regardless of how crappy it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at its, at its worst, it's, you know, it's suffering porn, right? Right. Which yes. is, you know, like, so you kind of have a scale of these things, but I do, I definitely, as I'm kind of getting older, I'm definitely like realizing it's really easy to despair. And, and us as human beings, n- not even consciously, but we tend to unconsciously take the easiest route for anything. And despair, I think, is one of those easy routes. You know, it's something that you can fall into really quickly without even noticing. 
uh, and and that you genuinely have to put some work in to kind of claw yourself out of what's essentially just a not necessarily always, but is a mental condition. Like a, it's a place that you have gotten to that you have to kind of leave mentally. And and it's hard to figure that stuff out. Absolutely. No, I completely 100% agree. I think that it's a very, um, it's a very understandable reaction to have. And it's one I have all the time. I am not um, like a super rosy optimist a lot of the time, you know, especially like the inside of my head is not, often a great place to be it takes effort it takes a minute to to step back and say wait okay hang on like to, to really pull yourself out of that mire you know and and that's where i think that um hope as a not as not as like a flavor but as a practice is something that's really important and for me writing fiction is how i practice that you know i i try to um write the stories that that i need to be told in that moment the stories i write are not necessarily how i'm feeling right then they're often usually in a response to uh me digging in my heels and saying no i'm not giving into that um but i i i think also you know none of this is to say that there is uh you know like one true way of writing fiction right because i think that's nonsense like you need to have grimdark is good and grimdark is valid and like there's a reason we tell it we have to be able to to exercise uh, our fears, our anxieties, um, the things we get angry about, like all of that needs to go somewhere. And that's where good art comes from. Right. Like cautionary tales are important. But um, the thing that that I took with me into my, my very first book and it's continued onward is, um, you know, I wanted to say, OK, that's good, but we need a counterpoint to that, like that you can't just have that like you have to have futures that you're also looking forward to because if the only story you know coming about it from the science fiction side of things if the only stories we're telling about the future are scary and bleak that even though it's in a fictional context i mean you know these things are are symbiotic right that does bleed into your real world feelings about what's the future going to be like what do i have to look forward to and so um I think that writing in a space where you're telling more hopeful stories, more um, aspirational stories is, is just the other side of that scale. You know, I don't see them as in competition with each other. I see it as um, just two things in balance, you know? Well, and, and I think as writers, like we have to really keep, we have to really stay conscious of the fact that, that the life is complicated. Like human beings are so incredibly complicated and we, we kind of live in this world where it's really easy for, you know, corporations, for news outlets, for, for politics to all be painted in kind of these left, right, black, white, et cetera, you know, kind of polarized ideas. And like, it's, it's almost necessary for a global society because you have to simplify things to make a global society work. But also it kind of sucks. Like, <laughs> like the world is so incredibly complicated and we're told every day, you know, oh, it's, you know, evil, good, you know, whatever. And even in our media, you know, like you look back at, you know, something like Tolkien and you kind of come back to that very basic, you know, like the good races versus the orcs kind of yeah. thing. And you get, yeah. you get, it's really easy, I think in fiction to fall into kind of that good versus evil or, you know, like to do the same thing because it's, it's a simplification that helps you reach your readership. Um, and, and constantly both as a writer and as a person thinking about and remembering how complicated the world around you is on the simplest levels. I, I think it really, it, like we were saying before, it kind of helps keep you humble a little bit Yeah, mm-hmm. and, uh, and not, I don't know, kind of helps even your, even, you know, whatever that, uh, you know, the righteous rage in your breast, right? Yeah. <laughs> like all, all the screaming in the void can kind of come down a couple of notches when you realize that these things can, they can be better, you know, at the worst times they can be better at the best of times they can definitely be worse. You know, it just, it's always like that. Yeah, for sure. And this is, well, this is one of the things that I love so much about science fiction broadly is that, uh, it gives you this opportunity to um, to cut through the bullshit. Do you know what I mean? Of now you have a blank slate. We're not talking about real world politics. We're not talking about like 
uh, different demographics as they exist here on Earth. We're we're somewhere else. There's like lizard people and like big lobster dudes and you know we're on a spaceship and so anything goes really and it's fantastic it's such a great way to be able to tell stories um that do dive really deep into that that nuance that lacking nuance that you were just just that you just mentioned you know that where you can get into stories where there are no easy answers and things aren't fair things maybe don't make sense things are really complicated uh, and there's no easy solution for this. And even, you know, by the end of the book, you're not sure what the solution is because nobody knows. It's just, you know, it's a it's a big uh, ethical or cultural mess, whatever it might be. Um, there, there's something very freeing about telling those sorts of stories within um, fictional worlds, uh, you know, imaginary places, imaginary species and whatnot, because to a, not entirely, right? Because we always carry our biases, our upbringing, our experiences, our worldview with us wherever we go that influences whatever you read. But it does put a bit of a barrier between those things. It is harder, I think, to um, to bring preconceptions into science fiction and fantasy because you don't have any preconceptions about the lizard people or the big blue lobster guys yet. You know, you you have to learn who they are and you have to understand who they are and you're not coming in with this knee-jerk reaction to whatever hashtag they fall under. You know, it's um I find it um a really I mean and this has been true since uh honestly since science fiction became a thing. You know, you see this all through, you know, original Star Trek and you know a lot of the novels being written at the time as well. It's a wonderful way to uh, talk about ourselves without getting mired in the um, so the, the real world obstacles that often prevent us from having uh, those messier, chewier conversations. I um I started so I was writing my first couple of Powder Mage books right about the time when um the discussion online regarding things like. Um, well, it was a lot of it was talking about stuff like like violence against women in Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and a lot of this was coming out kind of right after I had turned in my first book. And I remember kind of being really struck by a uh, some some part of the conversation basically saying you are writing fantasy or science fiction. You're writing secondary worlds the rules as you know them don't apply. Mm-hmm. You can do whatever you want within the context of your world. And uh, and interestingly, I feel like that small thing really changed kind of how I write and the way I approach world building. And, and it, it really does, like, it, it kind of frees you up to create more, you know, like, like just in terms of kind of the conversation around uh kind of gender kind of responsibilities in society you know I, like i i started writing epic fantasy with that very kind of uh male centric you kind of got your male hero with a sword and then you've got you know the wilting damsel you know waiting for him in the castle or whatever like that and uh and realizing that i don't have to do that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. honestly made it so much easier to write like it like it felt way easier. Yeah, it's um it's interesting what happens when all of a sudden you step back and realize that the sandbox doesn't have to be as small as you thought it was. I think those are really important to ha- really important moments to have as a writer regardless of where you're coming from with it, where your biases are. We all have them, you know, and and that's another thing that I think this genre lends itself really well to is is the ability to step back and say, well, wait, but why? Like, if we can, if we can, uh, you know, if we have magic, why do why do we have to have like patriarchal systems of government? Like, why do we like why why does that have to exist? And it doesn't is the thing, you know. Um, and so I think that too um, is. That's a conversation that I'm really glad has been happening over the past, I would say, a couple decades now. But um, I think that the fiction we're getting out of it is so much more interesting and vibrant as a result. I feel like there are so many people who are realizing you don't have to be hamstrung 
you know, in that in that regard anymore. You can write what you want to write, and it's really fun to see people testing those boundaries. Not just um, not just when it comes to um, you know, sort of demographic representation, but also when it comes to what the what the boundaries between genres are. There are a lot more stories nowadays where where there where you see a lot of blending between um, between science fiction and fantasy, between uh, you know subgenres that previously didn't coexist. And it's like, well, why not? I think we're living in the well, why not era of science fiction and fantasy, and I think that's a that's a great place to be. I uh, one of my like earliest things that I did kind of post-college that I started working on, you know, when I said in my head, oh, I want to be a serious writer now, um, was I had this idea, this kind of pitch for a um, a fantasy world that was Truman Show for the rest of a gigantic science fiction galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I, I never got super far into it. I thought about it off and on, and I wrote a bit for about a year. But I, there was a point at which I kind of went, nobody's going to buy this. Like all of my writing classes had all told me you can't, you can't blend this kind of stuff. And I kind of just kind of got in my head where I, I just, this isn't worth it. I'm not going to do this. And, uh, and it's funny because now I totally think I could do something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people would probably eat it up, you know, if it was good. Right. Um, which is always the, <laughs> if the final product. Right. <laughs> That's that's always the trick is you do have to write a good book. I know it's the worst part of this. <laughs> I know, right? Like it's so much easier just to say a pitch and then be done with it. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like that kind of thing, seeing kind of how, you know, these science fiction and fantasy kind of being pulled along by the self-publishing uh, kind of ecosystem and then uh, and generally just kind of like the grassroots way that people talk about things on social media and stuff like that. It does. It opens up, it opens the door to be able to do lots of interesting things. Yeah, totally. I, I had a very similar um, sort of experience when I was first writing uh, The Long Way to a Small and Green Planet, which is my first novel. And I was stuck on it. Not stuck. I was writing it, but I was really... Um, really hesitant about it and really unsure that it was worth me seeing it through because I kept coming back to this thing of like, this isn't real science fiction. This isn't real science fiction because there's no, um, we're not saving the galaxy in this. There's no planet blowing up. There's like no like super evil space cops, you know, like it's, it's not real science fiction. There's no MacGuffin. It's like that nobody's going to want to read this, you know? Um, and eventually I just got stubborn about it. I think I was like, well, I want to write it. So we'll see. Um, but actually the big thing that pulled me through was um, there's a, there's a book of short stories that I love to the point that I had to buy a new copy last year because my original copy was falling apart. It's called changing planes. Uh, it's by Ursula K. Le Guin. And it um, it's such a difficult book to explain no matter how many times I talk about it, because every story in there is um, really just this kind of proof of concept Really, the whole the the linking um, idea through the whole book is that if you get bored and physically uncomfortable enough, you can start to slip between dimensions, and you can go. You can do this on purpose, and you can go visit other places. Right? Um, she recommends um, doing this in like airport terminals and whatnot, which I really related to because I love to like space out while I'm traveling and, and daydream about things. But it's just all these different planets, all these different species and cultures. Um, and the stories don't go anywhere. And I don't mean that badly, but there isn't a plot. It really is just, let's hang out with these people for a little bit and see how they are. And I've read that book 20,000 times. And so I was like, well, I want to see more books like that. And I'm like, well, if I liked reading that, then then maybe, maybe somebody will like reading this thing, which is not the same thing, but it also is by design, very low key and very like, let's just hang out with some people and explore some ideas a little bit. And so I think, um, I think that's an important thing too, for, especially for writers who, who are in that same place that we were in of like, this isn't, this isn't any good. Nobody's going to want to read this. It's like, well, if, if you like it, chances are that you are, that, you know, you are not this completely singular entity <laughs> that, that has developed an entirely new taste in, in art and storytelling. If you like it, just trust in that there's going to be somebody else who likes it too, 
you know, um, if you're captivated by this idea, some some other nerd who's just like you is also going to be into this. And I, I think I think just trusting your gut on stuff like that is so hard to do. It's so much easier said than done. But um, yeah, well, and it really is. Like, like I think about this a lot. You know, I, I had um, Ch- Travis Baldry on. Uh, we were just chatting last week um, for uh, to do a recording, and I was talking to him about cozy fantasy. Because my brain, like as a writer, I'm a decade into my career. I, I I feel like I have cemented into this continually escalating stakes, world ending, big sort of epic fantasy, giant set pieces, big battles, um, you know, lots of murder and death kind of thing. I feel like I have like I, I'm like set in concrete in that. And I've reached a point at which I don't want to be anymore, mm-hmm. but I also struggle pulling out of that. I struggle looking at a smaller like plot and trying to make it work, you know, kind of in accordance with these rules that are in my head that have just been kind of, you know, they've been there long enough that they think that they're the right thing to do. Right. 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 Uh, and and it's weird to be at that place in your career, like to 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 say, you know, I, I love what I do and I'm going to keep doing it. But also I would like to dabble in things that are a little different and a little bit weirder. And but I like I almost don't have to like, or sorry, I, I almost don't know how. Right. And I, I kind of struggle with trying to rebuild that part of my creative brain. I mean, it's. It's tricky, right? Because I'm also I'm also roughly a decade in, so we're 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 <laughs> we're we're here at a similar plateau. I think that um, it's tricky, right? Because you you've spent all this time building that muscle, right? And you're good at that muscle. That like it it, it it's almost like um, I don't know a professional athlete learning a new sport. Like just because you are good at you know baseball or whatever it is doesn't mean that it's going to be any uh it's going to be super easy to to pick up cricket you know like it's it looks like maybe it's kind of similar but it's not um so you know i i think that that's i i understand that i understand that i think all of us worry about um getting stuck right that you worry about um oh god am i just gonna keep writing the same thing over and over even though you haven't you've never done that but that's a fear of mine all the time of like oh god what if i run out of ideas and like you know i'm just sort of rehashing uh you know things i've done before which is like there's no evidence that i would do that but that's i mean that's how it feels right you're you're so used to you're so used to this territory by now that it it does get hard to to branch out to try new things um it's it's tricky yeah i if you find a great solution for it let me know because (laughs) yeah yeah. and likewise i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I feel like my brain goes to that more and more these days of of okay i want to do something slightly different mm-hmm. and uh and yeah and it's and it's weird and for any you know any actual fans listening that doesn't mean i'm gonna stop writing epic fantasy like i love what i write and it's so much fun to do but like you do have to change things up i mean there's some authors who are very happy writing the same exact book again mm-hmm. and again until they die um and you know what i actually have a deep respect for that 
seriously me too me too like i don't i don't mean that badly at all when i say i don't want to do that like if you found your groove and that's where you live awesome like that's amazing (laughs) right and and you clear like some of these people become masters of a single book Mm -hmm. yes and like gosh like uh like when i was a teenager i got into reading my dad and i both read uh the clive cussler novels together and every single novel is the exact same thing it like literally they just file off the serial numbers put a new one out (laughs) and that's it and you know that was fun and my dad enjoyed them and we always talked about oh we did this twist we definitely saw it coming but you know it was still cool uh like it just sometimes sometimes authors just are really good at the one thing and and it can make them a whole career it can make them genuinely fabulously wealthy i think that's also actually a really important thing to remember right like everything you just said about those books like coming at it as a reader and not a writer you didn't care at all yeah. that it had the serial numbers filed off you had a great time with it like that's like like people listening can't see this but he's got the biggest smile right now talking about these books you know we from a writing standpoint you get so caught up in um this has to be the most creative original thing ever i have to reinvent the wheel every single time and i think that um readers and i'm speaking as a reader here myself too are more forgiving sometimes it's actually really satisfying when you can see the twist coming if it's really cool if you're like oh i see what they're gonna do i see what they're gonna do and then it's like ah they did it yes and it's it can be really satisfying um so i think um Maybe, maybe, maybe the grand lesson here is cut ourselves some slack. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't know if you've found this, but I have found that like the, the opposite of what you were saying with readers is that the writer brain, like I can become incredibly arrogant without even noticing. Like I can, I can have kind of that, that weird response of, you know, just waving off an entire genre of book because I'm like, ah, it's not really you know, that's just such and such, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, like, I think that writers do that. I think that we kind of will get set in the what we were taught, you know, how we grew up learning about writing. Um, you know, like when I was in college, there were professors that did that about science fiction and fantasy. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. absolutely dismissive. And you know, I, I had one professor very unironically tell me, Oh, I suppose you could make money doing that if you want. Oh, gross. <laughs> and, and you're just like, but, but wait, I want it to be both, you know, fulfilling and a career. Can I do both? Is that okay? Like, uh, and I don't know. It, it is it is weird how you can kind of reach that point. And, and you get that a bit in kind of the, you know, like the, the kind of the backbiting online clicks. Yes. Where you'll have, you know, the, the authors who are always winning awards you know, they're like, ah, they maybe kind of think a little down on the authors that aren't ever in the awards sections. Mm-hmm. And the opposite, too. Oh, that's just an award book. Yeah. You know, like, it's it's so it's weird how we kind of get it stuck in these ruts. Yeah, I, 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 I totally know what you mean about it getting clicky. This is why one of my favorite types of events to do, like, I, you know, I love doing... Um, science fiction fantasy conventions obviously it's my people i dig it i love doing uh literary festivals where you get people from lots of different genres those um i think it was actually really really valuable for me to do some of those like early in my career because i was just so embedded in this genre the you know this community everything and so getting to um chat with you know have drinks with be on a panel with people who write romance who write mystery who write other things just learning how the sausage gets made elsewhere learning about the work that goes into it um you know i think that's so important it's so important um and you know i i remember one of the best conversations i've had was actually just like in the shuttle bus going from the uh the you know the the hotel that the festival had put us up to to the festival itself and the lady i was sitting next to uh, you know, she had a badge as well. And so I asked her, you know, oh, so, you know, what do you write? And uh, she wrote um, early reader books, like, like the, you know, like the cardboard, like flip books for little kids. And I was like, wow, okay, yeah. what's that like? And she started talking, you know, because at first she was kind of self-deprecating about it, you know, just kind of like, oh, well, you know, and I was like, no, not like, tell me what it's like to write these books. And once she 
actually got into it, I had so much respect for what goes into a little cardboard book because she had to think so hard about like, not just what words a three or four year old would know, but what sort of concepts, what's going to be overwhelming for them? What's not like, how do you get an idea like really, really clearly across to somebody who sees the world very literally and doesn't have the full framework yet. And I was like, that's actually, that's an incredible skill to be able to do that. I don't think I could do that. You know, <laughs> like, and um, so I think, I think there's a lot of value in, um, you know, if, if your goal is to, to break out of those clicks, to, to um, not get stuck in those ruts, um, to talk to people who write different stuff. Um, you learn really great things and then you will never look at a little cardboard flip book the same way. <laughs> Again. Yeah, I, that's really interesting. I, I do like, I, I think the only, I've been to a couple of festivals. I think the only one I've done a bunch of times is Tucson Festival of Books. And, uh, and that one, it, like a very similar experience where you definitely, you're suddenly thrown from, I normally go to science fiction and fantasy conventions mm -hmm. and you kind of, you, you get an idea of what those are like, the type of people, the conversations you're going to have, all that. And then you go to Tucson Festival of Books where science fiction and fantasy is like, you know, five of the invited authors. Yeah. And you walk into the luncheon yeah. at the very beginning. <laughs> yes. And you're suddenly you're talking to someone who's who's a poet. You know, you're like talking to someone who writes, um, you know, military nonfiction. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's <laughs> you suddenly, you know, you you have a conversation for 30 minutes with someone, no idea who they are. And then when they leave, you finally like get out your phone and quickly Google them. And you're like, oh, they're like a luminary in the field of such and such. And it's it's such a weird experience to like be thrown into this very like, you know, like this blender of all these writers. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, uh, many times I've had the experience that I just described where, you know, I sort of get into the melange of, of genres and I really love those experiences. But sometimes when you when you said, you know, you, you go in there and you go to the luncheon. On occasion, like I've definitely ended up at the 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 little corner table of sci-fi writers because we all kind of flock together and are like, "Hey, what's up? This is weird." Um, so you know, I think um, sometimes there's safety in numbers as as well. But it's it's awesome to um, I, I think that the 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 big lesson I've taken away from stuff like that is you know, instead of looking at things and being like, oh, that's just such and such or, you know, blah. It's just like, that's not for me. You know, that's that whatever that is, it's not for me. I respect the work that goes into it, but it's not for me. And I, I think that that has, um, for me at least, um, I, I just been so much of a healthier way of looking at it because I also, I also, you know, that's how people look at my work too. My work's not for everybody. And I'll be the first person to tell folks that, you know? And um, so I think if you just sort of view it as, the the great big ecosystem you know the big pond that we're all swimming around in it, it it also lends itself well to what we were talking about earlier about feeling more comfortable about pushing those boundaries breaking some of those rules um if you look at how other people are doing it it's exciting to be like well why, why couldn't I take that thing and, and do it over here why not you know yeah yeah for sure well and it's it's interesting because you get that kind of coming the opposite direction from the from the readers when you meet someone random and you tell them what you do for a living and they become very apologetic that they don't read you know science fiction <laughs> fantasy yeah and and it's so funny because the, i in my, i'm always like just you know smile nod get through it but in my head i'm always thinking man it's okay yeah. like there's so many books <laughs> It's okay. right. It's, it's totally fine if you don't read that genre. It's fine if you don't read it all. That's okay. Like mm -hmm. I'm not going to think of you as a lesser human being. And it's it's just it is funny that people will when they find out that you do a creative thing for a living. There does seem to be like an instinctual um like they they want to connect with that immediately or they want to try to give you their reasons that they don't connect with. Yes. That. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing that happens. I feel like, um, folks outside of this industry don't really know what to do with it when you're like, oh, here's, here's what I do. Um, I, I remember, um, there, so whenever I fly out of, uh, 
the San Francisco airport, SFO, um, there's a bookstore there and a bookseller came to one of my events years ago and said, you know, if you ever come through Terminal 3, come by the bookstore and, and sign what we have in stock. And I was like, okay. So I, I've just done that ever since. And this one time I was in there signing books and this lady, you know, just some fellow traveler was just looking at me really weird. Like, you know, cause I'm just sitting there writing in books and I think she was looking at me like, do I need to call the cops or whatever? Um, but she comes over and she's like, did you write these books? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I wrote these books. And she, she just kind of just stared at it for just at the stack of books for a minute and at me. And she's like, so that's all you do all day is just write and write. And I was like, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it was, it was just kind of this funny moment of being there for someone's brief existential crisis of realizing that <laughs> people write books, I guess. I, uh I, uh, I I almost hesitate to admit this, but I think that one of my favorite tiny pleasures of being a professional author is that moment when you tell a stranger what you do for a living and they give you a small double take. Like, <laughs> the, because this is, it's, it's probably 70% of the people that I meet and end up talking to and tell them what I do for a living. They kind of give you a little, wait, wait, what? You, you actually do that? Mm -hmm. Like... Like there is a person on the other end of the books I read kind yes. of thing. Yes. You know, cause, cause we, we live in an ecosystem, you know, science fiction and fantasy conventions where we meet people that are very aware of their favorite authors and things like that. But the vast majority of the kind of public, they don't give a second thought to the director of their favorite TV show or the writer of their favorite books. They just consume the new thing that comes out and that's very normal it's very human yes but it's i don't know why i but i absolutely love that moment when they kind of go oh oh you, you you make things like imaginary things that's <laughs> kind of neat. like and it, and it happens and it's like a split second thing and you just kind of have to watch for it but i i, I love it every ha single time do you also do you get the question of um uh, that like the sort of uh like weird job interview thing that happens when you say oh i'm a writer and say, so what do you write? And I say science fiction. And they're like, oh, are you published? That's the first one I get. And I say, yes, I'm published. And they say, uh, like, what's the name of your book? And I'm like, well, I've written several books. And then they go, oh, you're, you're a real writer. And there's so many things to unpack in that. Because it's like, first of all, anybody <laughs> who writes is a real writer. And we really need to get past this idea of you have to be published in order for it to count. But it's also just funny seeing that, like, people don't really know what to ask in that moment. Cause you know, for, for other jobs, you can say, Oh, where do you work? You know, what's your salary, blah, blah, blah. Like what's your salary would be really rude, but people do ask like, how many books have you sold? And I'm like, I'm not telling you that like, that's a really weird question to ask, but they just don't know. They don't know how to follow it. And so that's the, are you published um, in a, in a sort of like, let me check your idea at the door before we have this conversation. It's always really weird. Yeah. I, I always phrase that in the terms of you get that moment in their eyes where they're trying to decide if you live in your mom's basement or if you're a multimillionaire. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, like the, it's like George R. R. Martin or the guy next door that smells really weird. Like, yeah. which are you? <laughs> and I, they're trying to kind of get a scope for that. Yeah. I had a, uh, I had a cab driver once who asked me what I did and I told him, he said, do you make any money doing that? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, it's really nice to get like paid for your hobbies. And I was like, um, okay. Like I, there's this conversation's over now. Um, yeah, people, people get funny. People get funny, but, but what we do, what we do is weird. And I, and I fully embrace that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dude. Um, I like having a weird job. Well, mm -hmm. It is weird. And, and you're not taught about, what a creative career looks like when you're in school no. you, you get a you get an idea of what an office job looks like um you know if you go to a trade school you understand working with your hands like you kind of get a structure and you know both from your own education but also from media right, right? like watching tv and stuff like that and and you know kind of creative professionals are one of those kind of vague things where you don't really good a good structure you know when it is when a writer is on tv they tend to be you know like it's the seinfeld thing you know you've got you know jerry seinfeld you know multi-millionaire you know comedian and oh it's the sitcom about this guy's life yeah and 
and you don't, but you don't actually get like a, an idea of what like a real human being is like. No, none of those people, like none of those characters ever have to file quarterly taxes. (laughs) Right? (laughs) None of them have to explain to like uh, someone at the bank when you're trying to get a mortgage, like what a book advance is (laughs) and why it's not a salary, you know, like nothing's set, nothing is set up for for creative work for gig work for for any anything that um falls outside of the nine to the five and so i get it i get why people kind of you know record scratch when we when we talk about what we do or when we try to like i don't know fill out a form for literally anything (laughs) it's impossible um yeah but i i like it i like i like this uh this weird niche that, that I have come to occupy. Yeah, well, and the, the financial thing is a weird place because we get paid in very weird ways. Yes. Like, like I remember the very beginning of my career, like I had to I had to hold over credit card debt, the most I ever have in my life, like six or $7,000 of credit card debt because I knew I was getting paid 40 grand in a month. Mm-hmm. Like, like there's, you just... You can't explain to people that are used to getting paid every two weeks yeah. what it is to try to financially plan around royalties, right. you know, stuff like that. Yeah, you can't is the thing. Like you can plan around, you know, I know I will get paid at these times of year, but there will be other things that pop up that are surprises. And I don't know what those things are going to be. I know what I'm going to get when, you know, I deliver something advance wise, but like, otherwise it's just a crapshoot. You know, and um, and I feel like for people just starting out for like, um, you know, aspiring writers, like new writers, um, like younger folks, I feel like that's a part of the conversation that is really missing and really needs to happen of like, listen, you can totally do this as a job, but like you need to plan for it. You need to you need to know what this is going to entail because it is not like, you know, you get your six figure book deal and then you just kick up your heels. That's not. (laughs) That's not how it works at all. Um, it is tricky and and there's a lot of uncertainty that goes along with it. And, you know, tying it into what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, worrying about, can I do something new? Have I gotten stuck in this rut? It's hard, right? Because that is intrinsically tied to your financial well-being. Like you have this need as a creator to to try new stuff, to make something new, to keep building, you know, on top of the skills you've already made. That's, that's what artists do. That's what drives us. But at the same time, uh, we, we live in a capitalist society and have to eat. So, you know, you also, you do have to think about, okay, is this like bold new creative vision that I have spent years agonizing over? Is it going to sell? And that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough equation and it's definitely what keeps me awake at night. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When, when your rut is what's paying the bills, it's, it's even harder to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I like to finish up the, uh, the episode each week by asking everybody the same question, um, very left field question. And this is what's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? The last thing that I ate that blew my mind. Wow. Okay. Um, the last thing that I ate that blew my mind was, oh, I was in um, Sonoma a few weeks ago. Um, I was I did a few I did an event in San Francisco and on the way back, my wife and I stopped in Sonoma for a couple of days just because just to chill and eat good food. And um, I had this duck for dinner that was like fall apart, like tender, like it was just perfectly cooked. Um, I could have eaten it forever. I talked very little through the meal. I do not think I was the best company because I was just so enraptured with this incredible, um, this incredibly prepared duck. And now I, I, I really adore hungry. duck. That's so good. It's, it's so good. So good. Mm-hmm. I, it's it is, like my rule now is that if duck is on the menu, I'm going to get it. Yeah, like absolutely. Like I, I, I think I, I only had it for the first time, maybe about six years ago. Mm-hmm. And I probably have only had it like it. We don't eat duck a lot in the US. No. And so like, I think I've probably only had duck a dozen times in my life now. Mm-hmm. But man, like when I, whenever I'm in Europe, yeah, I'm going to be in Poland in, uh, uh, in about a month. And I'm like, I will be watching menus for duck because it's just so much more common in yeah. Europe. Yeah. I, uh, so I, I 
I come from an international family and uh, I have a lot of family in Europe and my, my wife is, is European as well. And uh, I was talking to a friend from New York a, a few months ago and she mentioned she'd never had duck. I was like, really, you've never had duck? She's like, well, in, you know, in Chinese food and stuff, but I don't think I've ever had roast duck. And I'm like, I've had duck a lot. And she's like, I'm interested about the context in which you've had duck because she was thinking there'd be some cool cultural story behind it. But I was like, well, sometimes I go to a restaurant and I'll be like, oh, they have duck on the menu. And then I, and then I order the duck. <laughs> was, um, right. Like, yeah, it was a pretty com simple, completely um, uninteresting story. <laughs> she was very disappointed. <laughs> um, but now I've shared it on a podcast as well. So. <laughs> so. That was science fiction author Becky Chambers. Thanks again to Becky for coming on to chat. You can find links to her website down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for a bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jason Nall, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, Taylon, Brian, Will Lebelski, Bradley Thornhill, and Roberto Fontata for their backing on Patreon. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.